So Dan, thank you very much for talking with me. We first met, kind of, when you were 18 and a college student and your English teacher was from Chico, where I'm from, and you answered right. my questionnaire for my book about global youth and your your responses <clears throat> were so interesting. Um, we kept on corresponding. So how many years ago was that, that you were a fresh person, a first-year student? <laughs> I lost counting already. That was so long time ago. <laughs> um, and I think it's at least, at least more than 10, more than 10 or 20, no, no, 10, more than 10 years for sure. More than 10 years, that's for sure. Um, where and when were you born in China? Uh, I was born in central China, yes. What year? I think better not talking about the year. Okay. Um, the, <coughs> excuse me. In China, there seems to be a big separation between the big industrial cities along the coast and the interior. Is there kind of a feeling that the coastal cities are more progressive or get more goodies? Is, is there that kind of central coastal split or not? There is actually, like in reality, there is a big difference because I think most, not just, not just China, I think most of the countries that you see that if they have more resource next to the coastal area, that it's turned to be like that. I mean, even in the Nordic countries like Helsinki, Oslo, Stockholm, they're much better than the central uh, central area. Then uh, it's just very natural. They have more. They develop. They develop in in uh, in the perspective of historical development. They did develop more before beforehand. So so it's kind of natural. But in terms of policy, what I knew was that it was true that some policy was in favor of the coastal areas. They they like to. They have some. Um, because the infrastructure was more secure, uh, sorry, more secured or more mature earlier, that so they have the advantage to become more advanced than other regions. So I, for sure, I, I remember there was like maybe ten years ago there was some news that the government, if we talk about the Chinese government, they do have some policy that that is like support the regional area of the coastal states or province that they, they, they should develop earlier. And then the philosophy that they develop earlier then they help the other states to get uh, get better and better. So like they are helping each other. So that's, that's, that's it's, if that's what we're talking about, this kind of, uh, the dynamic is a bit different than, yeah, the, yeah it, it's richer in the coastal area. And be, to be honest, like in reality, it is true that it's a little bit poorer in the in the desert area, like uh, for example, um, central or western China. I've been there. I saw it with my own eyes. It, but also because they have less resources and the weather is really harsh there. They're they're in the desert area, and the, the, there's a lot of uh, measures were taken care of, like the, the government transferred the water from the, the coastal area and from the Long River or Changjiang 
to, to transfer the water to the desert area. But still, still, because the differences is, it looks very different, and apparently, and they're trying to do all ways to help them, I, I think. But, but still, you can't neglect the, the development for like, the coastal area, they have been developed more for centuries, even before there is a government. Right. Um, China has this phenomena of huge rural to the coastal cities migration. People can't make enough money in their farms, so they send their younger people go to work in factories in the coastal areas. But they can't bring their kids because you have to go to school where you were born. Is that right? Um, I think they have this uh, resident record that's the thing that has some restriction. I think that used to be a problem. It used to be quite a problem because, um, and it's not really like people were sent to the to the coastal areas to find jobs. It's just that the more backward areas they have less job. So the developed area, like in the coastal area, they have more opportunities for jobs. So, so this, it's voluntary. People just they rush to the big cities to find jobs. It's not like the well, yeah. Some some of them they are looking for uh, a better life there. They want to go there. Um, they either find a job and find a partner to stay stable there, and it's like like um, it's like immigration in some way for a better life. Um, but some of them just want to find opportunity to get some money, and then they they might go back to to open their own shop to have their own business. So they, they want, and usually the also the, the salary in the coastal areas is much higher than the the middle or the western China. So that would be the reason that people go there. And for for I think for the past decades or I think maybe before like ten years ago there was a big problem that yes this resident record which you, where you were born you were supposed to go to the school in your region there was a problem and then it just leave a massive amount of kids just stay at home with the grandparents so uh, it was a problem because the parents there they're outside like they might be thousands thousand miles away from the kids and because China is huge and it took maybe one day to travel from the home to the coastal area. So it was a big problem. And there were some talks about that. Uh, what I heard is that the government has have changed that. Like if the parents the if the parents they do work in some area and they can they can change the resident record so they can take the kids there so the kids can go to school in a local place. So the, the restriction has been Lesson. So they are trying to make people more, have a more convenient life. It used to be yes, like I think maybe before 15 years ago or 10 years ago, it has a really strict. But now I, I don't think it's still the same case that people like the kids can still go to the parents' city. They are like you can still go to school. I think it's it's less and less problematic than before. But. If you're working in a factory, that the working hours are really long. I mean, it's not like eight-hour days. So I wonder if they have developed childcare 
for the kids whose parents are working those long hours? I believe so, there are. There are a lot of uh, commercialized, actually. Like, uh, I think it's not so expensive, like the childcare, because the uh, you know, commercialization, all kind of facilities or institutions that you can find, that you can find this uh, tutors or children's school or, you know, after school, uh, after school schools that you can send your, your, your kids to. It's, it's not really a big problem. And I think they take the long hours, they take shifts nowadays. I think like it's not like everybody stay in the same factory for 20 hours. It's just not practical. What I heard is that they, they have more people so they kept more, they, they take turns to take the ship. So even this factory is working 24 hours, that it means maybe there are more different people working there. So mm -hmm. they have chance, I think the law has been more, more uh, mature that used to be that it wasn't a problem that you can ask somebody work there 24 hours if, if they want to. And nowadays, I think there's some, some factories, they, they need to reach some standard, like ISO standard, international education standard, and they have to follow certain rules. They're not allowed to uh, to have the workers work there like 20 hours and something like that. So mm. things have changed a lot. Uh, when you were in school, in um, elementary and secondary school, um, the big pressure was to study for the GEICO, the, the huge exam to get into college. And class sizes were, what What was the average class size? Um, it actually depends on the, sorry, it depends on the, the, the province that you're going to, how many people are in your province or in your city even, or even in your region. And it depends, like, your school, if your school is bigger, that your class might be bigger. Like, um, this is really not a fixed number. Some people might have a class of 10. Some people might have a class of 60, which is even, like, or even more. But they try to make less than, I think, what I remember is they try to make it smaller so that it's more manageable, so that more people can get the teacher's attention. So... I think when I was at school, the class was about 80, and Whew. and before, it was quite big, yeah, and, but even before that, it was like 100 or something, and then they, they tried to, they tried to divide, divide to be more, more classes and hire more teachers, so it's getting smaller, especially when you go to the, the last year, or the second of the last, uh, they they try like before you have this, uh, what you just said it's an college entrance exam, the college entrance exam. Before that, they they would make sure that everybody had more attention, so they would divide it to smaller class. For example, the the high school is three years, so maybe the first year it might be in a big class. Let's say, I think it was massive when I was in this high school. It could be some of the class even have 120, which is <laughs> crazy. Like, yeah, you will see the whole class with four people. That's no way the teacher can manage everybody, but they try. So that's the first year. So there will be there, normally usually, usually there are three uh, three years in the high school. So maybe from the 
from the second year or the second half of the second year, they would just divide to small classes, so it's more manageable. Um, when you were in school, and it's still true, I know, in Japan and probably China, that there's not a lot of dialogue. The teacher talks, the students take notes, but you're not encouraged to ask questions or dialogue. Is, was that true when you were in high school? Um, it's partly true. It's not like you are not encouraged to ask. Like the teachers always make sure. Um, it depends on the style of the teacher, of course. Um, but most of the teachers, if they are, uh, if they are not in a hurry, they always take time for the kids to to ask ask for questions. Like if there's like forty five minutes for a class, they would always put like fifteen minutes. Or at least ten minutes for the for the students ask. Maybe that if there not enough time, the teacher said, okay, during the first half an hour, please just maybe we don't have a dynamic style of teaching. Like let's just get over with fast, and then the last fifteen minutes, let's just discuss and talk about things. So it really depends um, whether the teacher have the style of teaching of a dynamic dialogue teaching style. Or it also depends like the class, like what kind of class, for example, if this like historical, um, let's see history class, like there's not, probably the teachers think there's not so much you need to, to ask, so they will just go through it quickly. Or like, but for language class, for example, it's more dynamic, that there will be more questions between each sections. So it depends on the style of the teacher, depends on the class, and depends on whether there is enough time. But it's not really per se that it's not encouraged to ask questions. You can always ask questions. And the teacher also, they are happy that after the class, you can still go to the teachers and ask the questions. So um, I understand that uh, comparatively, compared to the Western style of teaching, especially to Finland or America, the style seems to be more rigid, that there is not so many people like to ask questions. Even the teacher said, okay, what, anybody want to ask a question? And there might be a lot of people who are very shy, so they don't want to ask questions. So, so the, the style, is, it has something to do also with the culture difference. So, but yeah. your nickname was Mr. Y when you were in high <laughs> school. What, what was that? all about yes yes yeah i was uh abnormal kid i guess i have a lot of questions even not related to the uh not related to the class i think for example i have i still have a vivid memory when i have this class about indian revolution when we talk about gandhi and uh, when we talk about gandhi you know the, the hero of india and he was assassin and during this class, nobody asked any question. And the teacher asked somebody, like, is there anybody who wants to have a question? Nobody asked a question. So I asked the teacher a question, and he was very happy. But when I asked the question, his face just changed. I asked him, why did he get killed by a, a relig religious um, believer? And the teacher couldn't answer that. <laughs> Because I had a different way of thinking that not really attached to the specific lesson that I'm getting. Maybe I have a different perspective. So I, have, I always have a lot of questions. 
Uh, you also thought of yourself as not just a Chinese student, but kind of an international student. I've forgotten the phrase that you used. It was something generation kid. Do you remember how you thought of yourself? Uh, I don't quite remember that, um, but I was still a citizen of the world, probably. that That's probably the, the, the phrase that I used. And how, how did you have access to, um, was it movies, books in English? What, what was your international source of information? Uh, you mean when I was a kid or yeah. when I... Yeah. Uh, there are all kinds of books. I was particularly nerdy about science books. There's all kinds of books. And there also there was a flood of international books that either with original copies or with translations or sometimes bilingual. So I was lucky during my childhood there were a great access to great amount of good books. So that's it's opened up my horizons and and also for T V shows, um, we're lucky that we I think we have HBO at at home. So I I, I was very interested in the foreign movies when I was younger. I never watched any Chinese programs. And I always watched this international um, programs. Like there, there was also BBC or CNN. Uh, depends, like sometimes, depends, like some, the channel sometimes shit. And also there were channels from Hong Kong and Taiwan and the people, you can see that the program had different quality and people have different mindsets. So I think I have this, uh, I was lucky that I, not just by books, that it cultivated my open-mindedness, but also all the media and also the internet was very accessible when I was younger. Not accessible as nowadays, but, but still, there's a word internet and you can, you can check a lot of information online. What were, your, what were your favorite um, TV soap operas? I remember you liked the hospital one. I've forgotten what it's called. It's not a soap opera. It's a Grey's Anatomy. It's like, it's my favorite show. I think you also liked it before. <laughs> yeah, I used to watch it. <laughs> yeah, you said that's the only one that you're watching when in, in terms of the TV shows. Yeah, I, I, that was also the only one I was watching at the time. Because it was very spiritual and it was realistic. And it's from, a, it's very... Yeah, I, I really like it because more more because the not because the hospital, but it's because the humanistic view of how life is and how the how the doctors are looking at life. Yeah. Um, you mentioned kind of a spiritual aspect to it. I think of China as being um, atheist. That religion, Mark said, was an opiate of the people. So um, there. There's not, there's maybe tolerance of Buddhism and Confucianism, but there's not. It is. It seems like religion is discouraged. What What was the message you got growing up about spirituality or religion? Religion, um, it's it's have this. Uh, people have this uh, impression that it's not encouraged because uh, I think it's. Because his, one is because historical reason that during this 
Chairman Mao's uh, time that uh, they had this uh, cultural revolution that religion was um, very much uh, discouraged at that time. But it was a tragic history that, and probably because many people went through that stage. Um, so that it has some really good good impact on people that people think that religion is not something that is very essential to our life, that it's no big deal. So that might have some some kind of seeds from the history, from the past, that people think that religion is just not something you really need to feed your soul. Um, because that cultural revolution, it's really long time. I think, if I remember correctly, it was 10 years. And it really massively changed people's life. So that's some historic impact. And political impact is that because the Com Communist Party, to be a member of the Communist Party, you have to be a thesis. Which means you, you're not, because you have to believe in Marxism, <laughs> Marxism and and uh, the communism, socialism, and this is have a different outlook for the world. That uh, it's Marxism, the, the the philosophy that that is uh, adopted by the socialist party. They believe that um, it's it's the world view. It's it's more. Uh, it's different than the spiritualism. That's, so they think it's not, it's controversial, it, it's conflicted. So if you believe in Marxism, that is the opposite, like spiritualism is opposite of it. So if you want to join the party, you have to, you have to declare that you're not a religious member of anything. So that's something that's because political reason that, so that's why people think it's, um, but I don't know whether majority of people know that, other than the Chinese uh, Communism Party members. So that's something also might be make people think that it's not encouraged. But actually, in reality, it's very there's a lot of freedom for religion in China. The society is very it's very tolerant to religions. Like there there are churches, there are mosques, there's temples. They are everywhere, and nobody is confined to. You can have multiple religions. Nobody really. Um, it's it's like you're joining a club. <laughs> like the government doesn't really care, as long as you're not really working for the government that you are really a communist party. But I think even secretly, if you believe in Buddhism or Christianity, nobody really will condemn you or or expel you from the the government or anything. It's really, really flexible, and and for some reason that's even more like uh, it's it's very secular. Like I think even more secular than Nordic countries. Nowadays, the Nordic countries are more secular than before because people are not going to the church that, that often. But in China, you're like nobody really. You don't even have to write a form. Like when you have the ID card. Some countries you need to declare what kind of religion you are in. For example, I think in Czech Republic, my friends said, in your ID there is one one said like what is the religion or denomination that you belong to. There's no such thing that I remember in China. Nobody care whether you're a Muslim or you're Christianity or or Buddhist. Well, nobody really care about that. So it's really flexible.
Um, to be in a high position of a government agency or a government-run business is, I'm assuming that you have to be a party member to get ahead. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Like, if you're not, uh, personally, I have a relative who is like that. If you're not really a party member, it's really hindrance your career. That you, if you really want to climb the ladder to go to be a top official officer, like you need to, like because that's like the background that you can check. If you are a member, that that's well, at least that's what what is like before. And I'm not sure nowadays people still think that way. But before it was very important that if you're like it's not a 100% official, but I know that one of my relative was working in the government for many years, but for some reason he just never get promoted. <laughs> so there's always some reasons. Mm. So it's like maybe it's not 100% important that if you're not really part of the member, and yeah, it's well maybe it's have some impact on your life. Right. Um, to finish with your education, GEICO, the college entrance exam, is huge. People who want to go to college study and study and study, and if they don't do well, there have been suicides and major depression and that kind of thing. What What was it like taking the, the test? Is it three days and then the airplanes aren't, aren't allowed to fly over the area where the GEICO is being given? It, it's a big deal in China. It is, it is. I, I believe it's the same in in Japan and in Korea, at least South Korea. India. Yeah, I think the, there, that uh, there's the same kind of culture going on for that because it is very important. Uh, that uh, it's very stressful. Like when I was younger, I think I even have a lot of you know. Uh, problem, physical health problem because of stress, that when you are younger, I mean, you are not really aware of all this uh, stress you're dealing with, It's uh, but your body might be honest at telling you there's something wrong, right? but some people, they, for example, me, it's like, there's no choice, you have the only way, the only way to, to go is go through it with it, you have to go through it, so you have to keep your head on and march through it and you have to do your best and there is a lot of stress over it, yes, and it I was... Um, I remember you, you well, saying that you had to like, if it was a botany question, you had to identify the species and where it was found, and I mean there's an incredible amount of memorization and detail that you had to learn. Yes, um, I think the that's that's thing like to be the educational style in the old times. I think nowadays it might change a little bit. That they will give you the uh, the quiz for choice with choices. You have, you don't have to remember everything. You can have like A B C D E. That so it's really help a lot that you don't have to memorize a lot of unnecessary. Uh, things um, so that really helps. Like maybe in the old times that you have to fill the blanks. Is that so what you, you had when you took it? Did you have to fill in the blanks? Uh, when I was having that 
there, there is a proportion. There is maybe 70% of the choices quizzes, and then there will be maybe 20% that you have to fill the blanks. That's something you really need to remember. But this nowadays, I'm sure, like some some of the exams could be even 100% quiz choices quizzes that you don't have to remember much. You just have to know that what is not the right answer. Then you can even eliminate the wrong answer and get the right answer. It's really depend on the, the, the class. Uh, sorry, the yeah, the subject you're taking. And did you have um, English and Mandarin questions? Did you uh, for the exam? Or was it all so, in Mandarin? Uh, actually, there is um, the, the entrance exam consists of many subjects. So when you have the English, English exam, everything in English, all the questions in English, you have to answer everything in English, just like what you do in English-speaking country. And then you have the uh, Mandarin exam, which, which is basically have the same level. They have the same scores. Like, I think back, back then it was 150. So it was 150 for English exam, 150 for Mandarin exam, 150 for... Mathematics. So that's like the big three subjects, and then you might have 100 for politics and 100 for geography and 100 for, and then it, they compile all this score together as your final scores for the entrance exam. So that could be add up to like 700 scores or 800 scores totally, and then you use that the one that's the final result be the, for all, all the scores of all the subjects, then, then it's considered as your... And some, some, some of the um, major, for example, if you go to the college, so some of the major do have a specific requirement for certain subjects. For example, if you want to go to study physics, astronomy, let's say, or medical uh, science, and then you, you probably have, have to minimum 100 for your mathematics or 100 for your physics. So it really depends on the, the major that you're going to apply and also the, the school. They might have different, different universities have a different requirement for this course. Um, what, what role does political education <clears throat> play? You have, to, like when I saw surveys for my book that you got for me from rural schools, um, a big theme was Taiwan should be part of China. Um, <laughs> so, and it was really indoctrinated in those kids. Taiwan should be part of China. Um, did they ask questions like that on the Geico? Political questions? It's, uh, it's might be like different provinces have different uh, test uh, questions. So, actually, the, 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 the history. Book is said like you know should be. It just say historical. It is. <laughs> it's not even the word you think should be. It, it just say it is part of the the because geographically and historically they say it is like. So there might be some some depend whether and even in different cities they have different uh, test questions. So it might be that you really come across to this one specific question, whether. <laughs> whether Taiwan is part of China. Then if you say, no, it's not, then you lose the score for that question. <laughs> so, so it's like one part of the, 
Um, it might be appear in the subject of history, or it might be appear in the subject of politician. Uh, sorry, politics. So when, it, when I was in Shanghai and you helped um, translate for me, we we interviewed a girl who was in law school in her apartment. I don't know if you remember, but I was really surprised that she didn't know basic Marxist theory. So she she didn't know it, and um, I wonder if it's not that part much a part of education to know basic Marxist theory or what Chairman Mao taught as the Chinese modifications. Marxism. She doesn't know the basic of the Marxism. Uh, maybe she really hated. I don't really remember about her. I think she might be studying major of law. It's this kind of, for sure that you have to even even you're not a law student. You still have to study about that. That's for sure because um, the it's a compulsory subject that for uh, for politics. Politics is a compulsory subject for. As I knew that when I was a kid, it's compulsory for your high school, middle school, and even in the university, it's for all the students, no matter what kind of subject you're taking or what major you're in. It is something you're required to take. I, I My guess is that she really hated it. <laughs> she thinks it's like just, um, it's, not, it's not the way that she... Um, look at the world that she doesn't really believe in Marxism, so that's why she might defy to study it. But you know what? I, re I remember now she wanted you to answer because I asked something basic about Marxism and she didn't know, so she wanted you to give me the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. Um, yeah. So, in college, um, when you're studying politics. What does that that what does that mean? You study Marx and Engels. You study the, the Mao and the Little Red Book. I don't know what what was kind of the core message. Um, about the Red Book, actually, I think it's like something very fantasized. Like I I never really saw the Red Book. <laughs> it was probably my my mom's or my grandparents' generation that had it. So like, they would say that um, they have the Mao. People would think it's Maoism. What if it's probably Maoism, like the philosophy of Chairman Mao? That um, you have to learn all the philosophies, and in some way, it's really nice that you have to learn historically, uh, like uh, maxim maximism. Um, sorry, Marxism and Anglism and Maoism and the theory from. Deng Xiaoping, and then like all these very influential uh, leaders, you have to learn all this philosophy that they had, and you have the book about everything, and also about Western philosophies, and also the, the Asian Greek philosophy. So it's very, uh, it's kind of, uh, I would say it's quite non-exclusive, that they would give you all the introduction of all the philosophy, all the schools, and the history, and it's so it's very a lot of months. Uh, if I think now, it's a, a lot of uh, knowledge that they give you. But of course, that there is emphasize because it's a socialist country, and the class is basically a tool to to educate the citizens. So of course, the emphasize is always in Marxism and socialism and communism, even not not even. I would say not even communism, that 
um, the there there is absolute emphasis in socialism, uh, socialism, especially like the modern time socialism that how the after 1960s or 1970s how the the current um, communist party how they uh, use their own philosophy to um, change the society how they adopt the western style of market like marketization and free market yeah that's something very emphasized for sure yeah, it's interesting because it's the opposite of socialism to have <laughs> capitalism. So it's somehow Sometimes. Marxist capitalism. I, I don't know what that means. <clears throat> For theory, yeah, but in real life, it's more capitalist now. Um, but I really like you have to. For example, there's a principle. For example, there's like a reform for all this. Um, infrastructure of the country, even the energy industry, that's, it become, like, used to be, it used to be called a bureau of units, and now they are all called companies. But they, they adapt in a way that it's really smart and ingenious that you, for example, the energy business, the energy industry should be always dominated by the state. So you so the, the government makes sure that all the shareholders only like the state would control 51% of the share so the rest of them you can commercialize but they, may, they maintain the control of the industry so they, they did it in a way that it's very ingenious that it incorporates some free market philosophy but it's still under the control of the state got it um Chairman Z, how do you pronounce his name? X I. X I. Uh, it's Chairman Xi. Yeah. Xi. Um, he has more power than probably than anybody since Chairman Mao. So, do you have any thoughts about how he was able to achieve that kind of control and dominance? Um. I'm not sure because I've been now living outside abroad for many years. I I really don't know whether he truly have more power than all the other leaders. But I think the structure is always like that. That every leader had really good amount of power. So uh, I'm not sure that she had. I mean, sorry, she. I mean, the chairman. I'm not sure she had. Uh, I'm not sure she has more dominant power than the previous leaders, um, but he might have a better or a more uh, powerful reputation than other leaders because he really took up what, what I heard my from from people. Because I'm not living in China, all I read was just news, and so what I heard from people is that he. He did make a lot of changes, like for anti-corruption. That that he really um, people think he's dominant or powerful figure because uh, corruption has been in history. It has been very problematic in all Asian countries like South Korea, Japan, China. It's something that is deep into the culture roots. So for many years, many leaders before him. Um, have tried to do a lot of things, but 
not as effective as he does. Like, so what I heard from all the people that the, the people really, really, really like, like him because he really did a lot of things that is favorable for the mass, the mass majority of the public, not just for the government. Like he, he cut a lot of unnecessary funds for the government officers. He cut a lot of budgets for unnecessary spending. Like you know that before that, many officers can have a official trip to travel somewhere to to do something with the budget of the government, with the people's money. But I I heard that after him, this kind of thing were were forbidden. Like you're not allowed to use money of people. You're not uh, allowed to use taxpayers' money. If you want to travel, you travel by yourself. We are not gonna have this money budget from the government if it's not really, especially if it's not really uh, important. So that's why, that's what I heard that he really did a lot of things to change the situation. So many people really like him, but the, I think the government officers wouldn't like him <laughs> for that reason. Mm -hmm. um, do you? In China, do people pay high taxes or low taxes, or how 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 did the tax system work? Like when uh, you were working in Beijing, what what percent of your earnings did you pay? It depends. It's really it depends uh, all on the the pay level. Like if you have, for example, I think it was like in three. If you your if your salary your monthly salary usually before that it was like you pay every month, so if your salary is less than three thousand RMB, which like three thousand yuan, then you don't have to pay tax, I think. And then if you higher than three thousand, it's like um, graduated. System. Graduated. Yeah, it's it's yeah it's graduated. So the more you earn, the more the higher percentage of tax you need to pay. So, for example, uh, somebody who's cleaning the toilet, who is a cleaner, then he had really small amount of salary a month, then he doesn't have to pay tax. But if uh, if somebody had a higher salary, like you know, one ten thousand or twenty thousand, then he had to pay more. The percentage, I'm not sure about the percentage anymore. I think for the lower ones, it's probably sometimes it's only three percent. And it's it's much lower because the salary it's not so high in China, so the tax rate is quite small. But I heard nowadays since last year, I think since two years ago they changed the system. Now it's very similar to the Western um, tax policy that it's accumulated. For example, this whole year, like in in the past time, it's like they only calculate how how much you have to pay in every month. So, for example, maybe this guy, in this month, he only get a small salary, but maybe he get a big bonus in the in the Christmas or New Year. But nowadays, they calculate in a way that it's accumulates from one like one month to the for the whole year. So they calculate how much you earn for the whole year, and then you have if you make a big amount of um, income for the whole year, then you still have to pay a um, certain amount of tax. So they're trying to make it more mature that so the white people that who are trying to avoid tax. So how, they're trying to change all the time. What um, 
you went to graduate school in the Nordic in a Nordic country. What? Why did you pick that country, and what was the culture shock? What did you experience? Um, why did I pick? Yeah, I, I picked up Finland because uh, actually I I was uh, I think there were two reasons. I always been really like the Nordic countries. <laughs> I heard about the Vikings when I was a kid, but more more importantly the the Norse the Norse mythology about Odin and the Nordic <laughs> the, the the tree of I don't remember the tree but all the mythology is very fascinating since I was a kid. Um, that's I think it has some some kind of impact on me, and also uh, also you actually it was you who recommend me strongly about Nordic countries uh, that I should look into because they have a different they have a different system that it's more free you have much more freedom for academic um, so I really look into it it's like I did some research they do have really flexible academic freedom um, that's that's also account for a huge reason why I choose to study Nordic because you're now you're allowed to study anything. You have absolutely freedom for even planning everything. So that's this came to the point where maybe I I would like to talk a little about how how you what it's like to go to school in Finland, especially for the bachelor level. Um, for the bachelor level. So you're in the high, higher education level. You have absolute freedom to do anything you want. You don't have prerequisites you, like here. You have to take some science, some language, some math, some political science, history. You don't have those kind of requirements in Finland. Um, you have some requirements for specific subjects. For example, if you study. For example, if you study uh, mathematics or physics, there are few there are few core subjects that you're you have to take the credit. Um, so, but within the big frame, what I think that uh, um, my cat come to say hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you have freedom. Like there's few subjects that it's recommended that you need to take. Oh, beautiful cat. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> uh, so you have to take certain subjects for certain majors. Um, it's recommended, but I don't know whether you are 100% like you need to take them. Because if you have... When I see absolute freedom, there is absolute freedom. Because if you can negotiate to the school that you think that you're not taking the subject, that you like other subject more, if you negotiate, negotiate, and if they think you have a really substantial uh, negotiation with them, they would allow to do that. For example, um, for example, I have some friends who study, I think, uh, chemistry, but she just took a lot of class from other, maybe physics or maybe even astronomy. You can actually you're not um, confined to just take class from your own major. You can choose, you can have a like a broad term which major you're in, but you can take all the class in the university. Any class you're you're free to go. You're welcome to go. 
And if you talk to the teacher, you can get credit for it, for sure. And there's, there's no tuition, right? And as a footnote, no. is there tuition in Chinese universities? Uh, there is uh, there is tuition in Chinese universities. Um, for I think they get rid of the compulsory tuition some years ago. For so from the primary school to middle school, I think it was free. High school, I'm not totally sure. Uh, but the tuition is quite small. But university tuition was a big deal. Uh, it's probably the most expensive tuition fee during the, the school during your school years. Um, so that was quite expensive. Um, depends on the university also. If you go to a really, really good university, the chances are there the it's opposite that if you go to a really top university, your your tuition is really small. You pay like three hundred euros um, or three hundred dollars something for a year. Oh um, yeah, that's like not so much. Um, but actually, at that time, I think like maybe ten years ago, that's still quite a lot. Like it's it's not really a big deal compared to some university. Like if you go to a really bad university, which is purely commercialized, then you have to pay like maybe one thousand or two thousand euros or two thousand dollars. So it depends. Like because the good universities, they are funded by the government. That's why you pay a really small amount of tuition. Uh, but in Finland, in Finland, in Nordic countries, um, all these universities were funded by the by it's everything's paid, including me. I was lucky. I was lucky that I was um, a government student, so I don't have to pay anything. Um, you had to pay about small amount of fee for registration. Depends what year you're doing. Like there's. I heard it's the same in Germany. You have to pay the registration fee for a student union, for the student card, and for the student benefit that you get from it. But the tuition is free. Um, but nowadays it changed. Nowadays, basically all the Nordic countries, I think they changed a the lot. It's commercialized now. I was uh, last around. I was the, I was in the, on the last train. I think nowadays if people outside of for example, I think from people from the states, like if they go, I have a, I had a classmate who's from Utah. He was the last one. When he was in the second year, they have changed the law that if you're outside of the European Union, then you have to pay for tuition. Uh, so his program was cancelled, and then he transferred. He was transferred to some other program if he, he still want to study. So after 2017, if I remember, um, if, if you're outside the European Union, if you go to study in Finland, you have to pay a minimum about 1,000 or um, it's between 1,000 or 1 or 15,000 euros a year, which is not a big compared to like, it's about the same that if you want to study in the UK, but I think it's still much cheaper than study in the States, I guess. What, what seemed like what really struck you about Finland is how egalitarian people are, how they don't discriminate, that they, they, everybody's accepted, it doesn't matter gender, ethnicity, salary, that kind of thing. They're really accepting. That's, uh, that's something really amazed me. It's uh, it's really a free society, and the society is built upon trust, and it's not built upon 
um, hierarchyism like, or built upon materialism. The society is based, uh, it's based on trust and generally people trust people, people trust each other and your race, your background, your your wealth, it's it doesn't really define who you are. So everybody is more equal. Like equality, equal. I would say equality is the soul of the society. I'm not sure about. Uh, I'm not sure in in all the Nordic countries, Denmark or Sweden might be a little bit different because they they have the kingdom. They used to have the kingdom. So um, Norwegian had a society. Norway is a bit younger among all the five Nordic countries, they are like a young country, they, are, they build on the wealth of the oil. They are, all, they are they also more trying to be more free to people. But I think in Finland, the freedom and equality, and yeah, it's, uh, it's really, there's a lot of emphasis uh, in equality. So that people, for example, if, if you're, what I heard, if you have a job interview, um, if you have some physical disability and if you might be considered um, like you probably have less opportunity to find another job then when you're in the same interview then they would give you more opportunity so that you have more chance to get a job than other people who then because they're they're not disabled so they can go somewhere else to find another job so that, that they, they give more chance to people who have uh, Disadvantage, they get more chance to people who, um, yeah, who have a, a background that's that is not rich. So they consider all the factors that to 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 make sure the society is equal. And Wait, what so, what about now that you're working and living in Germany? Where does how does Germany compare? Germany, what I heard that in the past. That they have very similar socialist point of view. They have similar out. Uh, they have a similar take on the on how to manage the society. It was very socialistic before. Even I'm living in the western part of Germany, which it's different than Eastern Germany. The Eastern Germany is more socialistic, so western part is more democratic. But what I heard that people who live here. Um, after the unification, the whole whole take on for for the German society that they have really they have a really good salary and they have a really mature healthcare system. Um, so the, the the take on was very it was very similar. When I say was because the society has been changing now. Well, um, according to the people who grew up here, um, my friend who grew up. In who was born and raised here, and also I have uh, our company have a partner who is 62 years old. So he witnessed the whole changes of the society. That uh, they used to be very socialistic, but now nowadays there are more com commercialization and privatization. For example, the healthcare used to be like everybody just rely on the public healthcare, but nowadays you get more opportunity to see a good doctor and you are treated differently if you have a private healthcare, uh, healthcare, sorry, healthcare. Uh, so like you can request to see the, the top surgeon, you have less waiting time to get appointments. 
and maybe you have 100% refund for your cost if you have a private health insurance. Um, for example, for me, okay. I'm, I'm interested in um, Generation Z. I'm looking at them now. People are 25 and younger. And I wonder what you've seen in terms of their activism or lack of activism in China, Finland, and Germany. Like what I've heard from older generations in China is they think young people are really materialistic, nationalistic, you know, aren't really questioning the system. Um, what what what's your observation of of the young ones now? Um, it's a it's a tendency all over the world that um, younger people are more indifferent. They are more indifferent to the uh, politics. That's a trend I would see that all over the world, uh, both in China, in Finland, in Germany. I think that's the trend that uh, it was true. Um, not just reported by me, but reported by many kind of uh, study or or social media talks that, of course, that there, there's all, it's might be a little bit, um, I'm not sure whether the poll about that is um, updated, but um, I'll see, let's see for for China, it could be, it's, it's true that if you compare to the older generation, the younger generation, it is true that there are less interesting politics, um, and sadly, because the global commercialization and capitalism, that it is true that the, the younger generation are more um, materialistic. Um, there are also some people who who trying to be spiritual, but because the society had had massively changed compared to the older generation. Um, money is an issue for, for example, for our, maybe for our parents' generation or grandparents' generation, they were taken care of by the state. It was uh, truly, it was truly a socialistic country. But now, even Germany, it's not like that. People had to think about how to make more money. And so money is become an issue for many people. So. It seemed to be, uh, it seemed like a passive uh, trend that they have to adapt to it. Many people don't like it to be real uh, materialist, but because the whole society is worshiping money, so they have no choice because you have to, you have to adapt to yourself uh, to what it's like in the modern time, and it's actually, uh, sadly, it's. Uh, it's very realistic, and it's something you need to, to, to do to survive, basically. What so, about all the, the youth? You know, I'm working on this book about young climate activists, and they're very passionate and very outspoken in their efforts to keep from the, pla the planet from warming. And um, So there are youth like that who are very adamant about we've got to work hard to protect our future and the planet. Um, for the environmentalism, um, are we talking about uh, Nordic or Germany or China? Or well, there's hardly anything in China, and there's a lot of environmental activists in Germany, and I don't know about Finland. Um, I think in Finland also people, uh, I think in Germany and Finland it's more, 
the young people have more secured. They, they have the social system that if you don't have a job, that you might uh, you get the subsidy, unemployment subsidy from the government. So the people, the younger people, have more security than the Chinese. Um, the Chinese. It's not like the Chinese young people, young generation. They really. It's like they're. It's not like they don't care about the environment at all, but because the stress of survival is so much, they have no energy to think so much about the environment. They have to care about the survival, how to make a living, how to have a better life. They don't have the energy to think about a lot about the, the carbon emission. Unlike, the, for example, in Finland, everybody has more secured um, economically that you're more, you have more security in the society, so you have more time to truly think what matters to you or what matters a lot to the society and to the, to the whole world. So generally in Finland and Germany, I was thinking, I'm not sure about Germany, but in Finland, people really have more time to think about um, how they want to, to spend the life and what is really important truly important to the life and they, they're trying to explore the meaning of life so they have a lot of uh, uh, energy to improve to, to protect the environment but in China people have to you know they have to worry about the salary of next month so they even they want to protect the environment um, the power is very limited mm -hmm. um, is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't discussed in terms of um, your travels around the world, being a multicultural citizen of the world, Mr. Y. <laughs> um, anything I will add to, um, I think all the world that I traveled to, I mean, uh, I feel like something maybe that connects to what we were talking about is just the global trend of commercialization, even like, even like the Nordic countries and like the societies stepping to another era of everything trying to be privatized and everything is going to be commercialized and the market is more important nowadays that there used to be, it's, it's kind of a tragedy that there used to be that we have more time to think about humanity, about the world, about environment but nowadays and it's a trend that that I think the Nordic camp had a lot of resistance resistance to it but it, still it's coming it's coming to there also Germany that's my friend who said that it's the German society is also going that way it's become more commercialized that everything is more uh, like you have to buy he said sometimes you wonder why does he have the compulsion to to buy so much stuff he doesn't need and why is everybody just become a slave of uh, materialism nowadays? Um, that's something, yeah, something that seemed like a big trend, which I don't really like, <laughs> but it seemed to be there. That's something. Hmm, interesting. Thank you.